Today in the garage, we have Siavash Pashang and Sohela Pashang. Sia Pashang is the owner operator of Pashang Law Professional Corporation. He has successfully defended hundreds of individuals at every level of court in Ontario, charged with a wide range of offenses from less serious charges, such as theft and domestic assault, to very serious offenses, such as drug trafficking, sexual assault, break and enter, and murder. Dr. Sohela Pashang is a criminology professor and Safe Talk suicide prevention trainer at, at Humber Institute of Technology and Advanced Learning. She operates private practice, a private practice providing counseling and consulting services to individuals and organizations, including law firms and legal professionals. She has had numerous research projects and has published various articles on the impacts of mental health, grief, and COVID. Her latest edited book focuses on youth mental health. Whether you're cruising in your Honda Civic, strumming your Yamaha, or drafting a leave application, step into the garage, listen to the experts, and get a tune. Sia, Suhela, thank you very much for being in the garage today. Thank you for having us. Thanks, Marco. It's a pleasure to be here. So for our listeners, this is not um, bring your mom to work day for Sia. (laughs) We're starting on a light note, but we intend to get into some pretty important discussions here today. And I just want everybody to understand how um, this episode of The Law Garage came to be. Sia, you and I um, work together uh, out of the same chambers currently, and over the time we've worked together, we've done several cases that have some pretty, um, I want to say, serious subject matter. That's right. Uh, thanks, Marco. Uh, we actually uh, work out of the same chambers, but before that, um, we also came from the same uh, firm when we first started our practices. Of course, uh, at different junctures, uh, I didn't actually um, have you at the same time at, at Hicks Adams, but uh, uh, we met at the Christmas party and we hit it off. And uh, we've done a few cases together as uh, co-accused counsel, but also co-counsel in in a mentorship role that you've provided to me. And uh, I'd like to get into that as well. In some of those cases, the subject matter became something that you and I have discussed as being particularly difficult to cope with, given the offenses that have taken place and, and... the trauma that might have been experienced uh, in, in one case at the hands of our client, uh, admittedly, but to a lesser extent. And you and I discussed these issues and we started discussing how our profession is difficult in that regard. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it was valuable to me um, as a younger lawyer at the time uh, to have you know, uh, more senior counsel uh, alongside to, to, to discuss and talk about those, uh, those issues because otherwise... Some of them were complex in a way that it would be a little bit difficult for me to sort of come to terms with them and know how to uh, internalize them, but then also handle the case in in an effective manner. So I think having that partnership in order for us to talk and and go through it and really have a sense of uh, camaraderie in that regard was was beneficial. Um, And yet, truly, it was difficult uh, for our client, for the parties involved, uh, and for the complainant in that case. Uh, there were some uh, very difficult uh, and traumatic incidents that we had to sort of go through. So as we continued uh, in our practice and we see each other on a regular basis and discuss law and legal issues, what really triggered more recently a discussion that on, on mental health and the law was the recently published article by Chief Justice for Ontario, Justice Strathy, called Litigator and Mental Health. And Sia actually referred me to that article and I read it and I thought it was a very poignant article and I commend it to uh, all members of the bar because it's an article where the Chief Justice basically identifies issues with um, litigators and the stress that we're under. And so in discussing that article, Sia advised me that um, his mother specifically deals with this type of uh, these types of issues among professionals especially lawyers so that's how 
Sohela got involved in this project. And Sohela, tell us a little bit about your background and and how um, your background assists in helping people in the profession dealing with these issues. Well, uh, to be honest with you, many, many decades ago, I uh, was hoping that I would go to law school, but obviously being a new immigrant took me completely to a different direction in life, which was social work. So I am a social worker by profession and happen to be a social worker who is also academic. And um, my fascination with the law from the very earliest stage and perhaps ideological discourses that sees both the limitations of the criminal justice system and the potentials for change, including mental health promotion, and the research took me to Humber College Criminology field, where I'm currently teaching Bachelor of Criminal Law, uh, Criminal Justice degree. And as a social worker and therapist, I see some similarities between my field and the criminal law. Um, for example, defense lawyers, um, cross the lives of many marginalized population individuals who are dealing with a certain serious mental illnesses or poverty or serious neglect and childhood trauma, sexual abuse, homelessness, addictions, and, and so forth. So I also deal with similar um, conditions throughout the 30s maybe four years, 33 years that I have been a social worker. But interestingly enough, I occupy a very, um, a role that in, in on the one hand, I'm teaching and training new cohorts who are entering the field of criminal justice system. On the other hand, I work with victims. I provide therapy with victims. I also work with the, those who are considered accused within the justice system. I offer therapy to them. At the same time, I work with uh, litigators and lawyers and other folks in the justice system who are also dealing with their own mental well-being and mental health condition as they continue working within the field. But um, I would like to highlight that um, what distinguishes my field despite all the similarities with the law from someone like Sia, for example, is that my social work training places a serious emphasis on the skills required in working with people who have potentially addictions or mental health or mental illnesses. And Justice the Strati in, in that article highlighted that the important contributions of, for example, Justice Armstrong is pioneering the mental health court at Old City Hall since 1988. That's a long time ago. But I'm not sure how much of mental health teaching that I get, for example, as a social worker with dealing with complex cases is um, embodied within the lawyer's um, law school curriculum. And, and these courses not only can prepare um, defense lawyers to, or other litigators to work with individuals who might have mental illness or, or disclosing some serious form of violent or nonviolent situation. Um, not only that, but also destigmatizing the discourse and preparing them to also look inward, look about how is my mental well-being? Um, am I ready to work with these complex cases? What are the impact on me as individual and on my colleagues? So that's, I think, where my role can, can kick in in terms of having that skills that I learned throughout my um, professional and academic work i perhaps see i can add to that yeah i mean just on, on one note um so that you talked about just law schools uh as as, as graduates of, of law school both mark and i uh i i can say that uh, in my three years there i don't recall a single course that really focused on mental health well-being um of either the student or what to expect 
as a future lawyer, uh, whether you're a solicitor or barrister entering the field, um, I mean, it may have been brushed upon in, you know, uh, an ethics course, uh, you know, uh, to a small degree. But I think uh, at the time, and I, I believe that's still the case, it's lacking. So I think this sort of route uh, of engaging with students um, would be a good good place in the law school to 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 to, to occur, and um, I think that might help you know, the awareness and, and uh, understanding for some of the new lawyers when they get into the field. You know, some of the traditional um, brandings that lawyers have, for instance, as either you're a grinder, mm -hmm. which presumes that you're one of the hardworking lawyers and your, your, your characteristics are that of, you know, being able to just work through anything. Or another one is a rainmaker where you have an, a, a knack or an ability to draw clients and, and you're putting all of your emphasis there and your ability to, to bring in business is important. But all of these uh, characteristics, they tend to be the types that embody this work that we require a certain level of work or amount of work or amount of, and, and how Justice Strati puts it, that gladiator mm -hmm. attitude that we shouldn't, you know, back down from this, we have to keep pushing. And law school kind of breeds that. They don't really say, well, we have we have a, a way to help you uh, understand it. And then on top of that, you're, you're trying to make it in this profession and then you get into criminal law. And, and this is just as important from the defense perspective as it is from the Crown, but this is a defense-oriented mm -hmm. podcast. But the subject matter is really rarely ever something that is considered uh, an issue uh, if you decide to get into criminal defense. And then we have to learn to cope with the subject matter uh, of our of our profession. So I feel like in law school, there's really no starting point to help us understand that. Yeah, I, I agree. And just speaking on that uh, point, Marco, I think um, the gladiator is, is what uh, Justice Strathy uh, indicates in his article. But, uh, you know, the thick-skinned mentality or, you know, I've seen it all. So, like, you know, I can handle it again kind of mentality that most criminal lawyers will tell you, you know, when they're talking about their field. Oh, I've seen everything. I've seen it all. Um, we have lots of pressures. Uh, you know, we have the pressure of, you know, as a young lawyer, if we're in a firm, to ensure that um, our, our employer is satisfied and, and keep, keep a high performance, which means, you know, the grind has to continue. But, of course, and this is much more important, we have... A responsibility to our client where you know their lives are often in our hands um, and and we have to navigate through and so we have to sort of continue and push forward um, and there's no kind of education as to how we can you know consolidate that with our own mental health and in order to get better it'll mean that our performance as, as litigators and uh, responsibility to our client will also improve and increase so I think um, we're lost in that um, sort of dynamic as to how to how to better cope as young lawyers um, going forward. Suhaila, do you have any comments on or, or suggestions on how we can work as a perhaps as a professional, but both as a profession and individual individuals to deconstruct this gladiator myth? Absolutely. And, and again, I want to go back to the training that um, I got. Like in my training, self-care was prioritized from semester one until the exit from the program. That is embedded within the curriculum. And as I'm teaching, for example, I teach a course on counseling. And not only I, I teach the basic skills of interviewing and how to uh, engage with client, but also self-care. Like in that course, I'm going to offer um, a session on suicide intervention and prevention. And I was actually thinking that like as a social worker, I get to work with a lot of individuals who might have ideation or serious thinking about it. And I'm sure that also exists within the, your field, the law field, that people will find out that they may spend most of their lives isolated outside of the society. And, and they may be thinking, are the lawyers equipped with the skills to recognize, to support, to help? 
and and I, I don't know. I think most of the lawyers learn about mental illness, mental health condition on an ad hoc basis. As they meet with their clients, they begin to learn more detailed information about how to work with that. And then if they, they don't get that training, how are they, like how am I expecting someone like Sia, for example, uh, to care about self-care? And I have to share that um, some of the, like I, I get to work with clients from all um, walk of life, but I found my clients, the, the lawyers or the ones within the law uh, field, I spent few sessions with that person to just get in touch with the feeling. Like, how do you feel? And because the law doesn't have a feeling, the law is a very cut and dry. You commit this crime, this is the way you will be handled or, or dealt with. Whereas the person or that gladiator, as Justice Strati mentioned, has also emotion, has a limitation of what this person can take. And this person is subjected to primary and vicarious or compassion fatigue um, impact. I will, um, if you wish, I can describe all those um, terms that I use shortly, but um, self-care needs to be embedded routine. And, and I think I really appreciate this uh, session because in its way, as Justice Strati mentioned, we need to destigmatize the discourse. And how do we destigmatize the discourse? By talking about it. And this session is a good starting point that um, let's not just think that it's going to happen to somebody, to a colleague. It happens to all of us. So it sounds like, if I understood what you just said, is there, there's a twofold approach approach we our profession in, invariably uh, compels us to deal with um, clients from time to time who suffer from these particular issues and forces us to do our best to gain an understanding of their issues in order for us to do our job properly but in the meantime we should be reflecting as well as to whether or not the impact of our work with those clients is something that should be self-reflected in that we should be looking within to see if we are suffering from some of those issues or if we are taking the proper steps uh so it goes hand if, if i understood that uh, correctly Absolutely. Like one of the things that I notice um, among some of the folks is that there is that emotional numbness because in order to survive with the high demanding and at some point very traumatizing cases, like you work with um, extreme cases, there, there's child pornography, there's sexual abuse, there's trauma, there's all kinds of violation and violence. And, and, and you can't just have that numb emotional reaction. You are impacted. You hear so many details. The same thing as a social worker. I'm also hearing the same thing from the victims in addition to a lot of emotional description of what happened to them. And if I don't prioritize self-care, I will burn out and I have to pack the profession altogether and leave. Absolutely. And see, and you can speak to the how this then becomes compounded by the procedural effects of the, our job in the sense of our responsibilities, court, judges, and the pressure that the system puts on us. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, just, you know, to carry on from there, um, Justice Band, uh, he's, a, he's a judge in the Ontario Court of Justice at Old City Hall. He's openly, Justice Band has openly talked about the effects of mental health and trauma on the justice system participants, uh, specifically those who are within the courtroom when some of these cases are being discussed uh, and, and seen through. Um, some of the rulings he's had highlight the issue of, you know, handling graphic evidence in court. Uh, and, and Swahila mentioned, uh, alluded to the, you know, child pornography, for example, or other um, awful, you know, um, extreme uh, sexual violence type cases. Uh, in the justice system, and how continuing the conversation about the trauma in the justice system participants uh, that, and, and what they can suffer by being exposed to these images um, 
can have a, you know long-term effect on on people so um you know one of his decisions uh, the case of rv moore he talks about rather than having the crown play or present um, a sample of the videos or images of of you know a crime that has taken place for example child pornography where there you know uh, the evidence involves uh, videos and 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 images uh, we often should urge the uh, the crown of the defense to agree on, on a verbal description of of the events that have taken place or the images that are being uh, presented and rely just on that and not have to show these images in court to then expose court clerks registrars and reporters and the judge and and participants themselves uh, and f- further re-traumatize uh, and, and sort of create that sense of um, uh, potentially harmful material to us. And so I think that's a, a good first step within the courtroom itself. And of course, that has its limitations. You know, um, when a, uh, a defendant pleads not guilty, you know, he's owed his answer, uh, full answer in defense. He has to, you know, see his case through. I think um, you can't always rely on just a verbal description. But in cases where it's streamlined, where there is a guilty plea and sentencing is relied upon, I think having descriptions is, is a way to go um, to prevent that further um, traumatization. There's also this, and I, Justice Strathy talks about it uh, to a certain extent in his article, but the, the concept of you know, the adversarial nature of the litigation carries, its, carries on us uh, an extreme burden just on how it happens. We go to court every day. We're fighting with the other side. We're bumping heads with the judges. And then the subject matter gets complicated. A lot of his article uh, discusses what firms should do or should be mindful of with respect to litigators in terms of lifestyles and taking um, better care of each other, as as Sohail has been talking about. It should be emphasized in the work environment. And I'm just wondering if there's some suggestions, Sohela, you might have uh, in this brief session about what types of steps we should take in terms of self-care. So um, um, based on my uh, therapeutic work with some litigators, um, I realized the prevalence of depression and anxiety for, um, as Sia said, facing demanding cases in addition to burnout as a result of long hours and um, symptoms of PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder for being exposed to details of extreme um, form of trauma and victimization and dehumanization narratives. Um, These experiences, while um, has a serious mental health impact on all parties involved in the courtroom and beyond, because it also impacts even um, the first responders, including the police officers, are often suppressed, uh, particularly by litigators, which is not, uh, if it's not regulated with uh, self-care strategy, may cause as I mentioned earlier, primary and vicarious trauma. What do we mean by that? The primary trauma, of course, for example, when individuals are directly or indirectly experienced, witnessed, or are confronted with the traumatic narratives or circumstances. And that could be hearing uh, details of any particular case. Whereas vicarious uh, trauma or compassion fatigue impacts those who care for others. Again, as a uh, litigator, as a defense lawyer, you do care for your client and um, you want to help them. So both forms of trauma that I just mentioned impact um, the well-being, the overall mental well-being. And I want to raise the fact that we talk about or we look at this as Justice Estrada mentioned, litigator, um, gladiator. But this gladiator also has a personal life. Let's not forget that lawyers may have complex personal life where there is balancing between self and family relationship, feeling guilty for not winning their cases or losing the liberty of their clients 
all for cross-examining the victim. And in order to cope with their stressors, this is some of my experience working with folks, is that they may rely heavily on after-hour socialization for a drink or two, or light substances even in some situation. And uh, Justice Strati and research has shown that um, um, lawyers may have higher rate of anxiety and depression in comparison to other professionals. So coping is detachment from the emotion, and um, which I um, spoke earlier. So suppression of emotions eventually may turn into depression and anxiety or other mental health conditions. Um, what basically I recommend is we need to promote unpacking the impact, surfacing the suppressed emotions while learning to regulate these emotions in a healthy coping strategies. And what those strategies look like, we can further discuss them. So, Hala, what do you suggest in terms of helping us cope or address with uh, some of these issues that you've identified? Um, thanks for asking. I'm actually recommending um, a few um, strategies at macro, meso, and micro level because we can't, as Justice Strati mentioned, just think that it is the responsibility of lawyers themselves to do self-care and and be mindful of their mental well-being. It, this is a systemic issue within the field. So, um, and my recommendation is mainly from the role of mental health provider, researcher, and educator. I think it is critical for the law society, law schools, law firms, and other stakeholders to continue exploring the root causes of mental health conditions of litigators and the justice employees through research. We need to conduct more research in order to implement adequate intervention and prevention strategies systemically. And I was thinking that actually in parallel, we need to consider curriculum review of the law schools to include distinct mental health course um, by applying diversity and intersectional lens, because this is also something that Justice Estrada mentioned that, for example, to unpack the additional mental health challenges faced by gender and racial diverse folks. Um, and, and also offer some other um, hands-on uh, training to the students in order to prepare law students for the reality of the field that they're going to face. And also, again, the stigmatization of mental illness, mental health, and mental well-being has to start from within the system. Um, I actually had another idea, and that is, in my opinion, because I also have worked with some articling students, and maybe articling part of the law degree should further include mandatory self-care strategies to emphasize the need to address mental health well-being. And this could be as easy as adding the therapy benefits offered through the Law Society Lab and other law firm resources as part of their introductory manual if they get. I'm not sure that they must use at some point during their articling uh, time. They, they have, I believe, uh, nine months of uh, articling work or maybe less, I'm not sure. But um, if that is embedded as part of their, their uh, work, I think we will be way ahead of the time. And um, Justice Estrada mentioned that uh, almost 50% of lawyers don't take advantage of their mental health resources, despite having a higher rate of work-related stressors. Perhaps Sia may want to make any comment before I move to the meso level. Yeah, I mean, that's a very good point just on the on the topic of articling students. And, and you're right, uh, there isn't any uh, component of, of a 10-month articling stint uh, that incorporates mental health. Uh, I feel 
and law firms just don't have the resources, don't have the education or the knowledge as to how to approach it. So I think having external um, parties um, involved and perhaps a mandatory portion of articling, uh, we've seen articling um, adjusted in so many different ways uh, recently. I think incorporating something where there's more of an educational um, task force type of uh, framework in place as, as a mandatory component of articling uh, that addresses mental health and coping mechanisms, trauma, both within the, 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 the firm, outside the firm, and within the practice, I think that'll go a long way um, and ensure that people do get familiar with it and, and know that there are resources available through the Law Society and other links uh, that we otherwise didn't know about and may learn about when it's um, a little too late or when we're so deep and may still not sort of uh, approach. Thank you, Sia, for, for adding that. And I want to go ahead and say, at a, as a law firm, at a law firm stage or meso level, um, as Justice Estradi has mentioned, law firms play a really important role in fostering an environment for their team members to reach out for professional help. My recommendation is mainly geared towards firms to be mindful of their socialization strategies. Um, many of the folks that I have come to work with, they always refer or comment about even getting formal and informal mentoring during their drink socialization. And, and I'm suggesting that after half your after hour gathering and mentoring meeting beyond a drink, for example, why not using other forms of de-escalation strategies such as art-based activities, um, exercise that embodies relaxation? offer professional development, ongoing professional development sessions to include self-care and mental well-being workshops like I get ongoing um, self-care and even diversity education through my academic institutions and and why not and even through my professional association so why not adding those elements into a practical um, setting Sia do you have any suggestions on this one before I go to the individual level? Well, I think, uh, and perhaps Marco has some uh, input as well, but uh, you talked about professional development. I think, you know, as lawyers, we have a lot of a whole variety of CPDs or, you know, um, that we have to, some are mandatory to, to, to continue our accreditation on an annual basis. Uh, and slowly we've seen um, mental health focused uh, CPDs incorporated. Uh, Justice Band is an example. He, you know, I've, I've seen him speak at events. Uh, we have had other practitioners uh, and litigators speak about their personal uh, journeys uh, with mental health in the in the in the uh, you know criminal defense world. But I think more of that getting external help um, uh, of experts to come in to our professional development programming and incorporate that and make it more of a normal um, component, not just sort of a side. Um, you know, smaller piece uh, would be helpful. I found the idea of a of an arts based, um, you know, extra curricular activity interesting, or even exercise based. I guess um, something that I it would be interesting because in other areas of business, I know that they they do take those uh, initiatives. And in the law, it just seems something that we can't even wrap our minds around other than, you know, go to the bar and have a drink yeah. and a social event. You know, we we enjoyed when we worked at the firm that, you know, every first Friday was mm -hmm. drinks on the firm and everybody would attend. But it would be interesting if it was, uh, you know, a painting class or I don't know, um, some ex uh, extra uh, like a, a basketball game that yeah. we a pickup game or something to that effect. It would be interesting if it was something more than simply just go to the bar and drink. Absolutely. Some other form of expression, but also bonding and, and um, sharing stories with each other uh, about our experiences and, and war stories as, as quote unquote, we would call them. I think those are also great ways of, of fostering good relationships. It just, I, I would just wonder if it's ever going to seep into the legal profession as, as it has seeped into other areas of business and other areas of uh, professional, uh, you know, the professional world. And so we go into, I guess, the next, would the next be micro level? 
Soela? Yes, the, the final is microlevel. And um, I highly suggest to folks to go and talk to someone. This is where us individually need to take some responsibility over our well-being. Use your insurance benefits and talk to an expert. De-stigmatization of mental health begins at home and with the self. And in order to help someone, let's say your colleague, we need to help ourselves first. And if you see or notice a colleague is hurting, say something and do something. Going for a drink can only again perpetuate the condition, but offering professional support is the key to healthy mental well-being. And I also want to make a comment that although some firms do have um, mental health support resources through their insurances, so as the Law Society offers some sessions, but um, given the extent of the impact and given how as a society now in Canada, we are openly talking about mental well-being. I think we also need to increase um, maybe the number of sessions uh, folks can access. Because as I said earlier, like when I meet with my clients, I spend um, at least a couple of good sessions to get into, I call it peeling an onion just to get into the actual feeling that is beneath the person of a um, very professional person. How do you feel? How is it impacting you? And then linking, let's say, having a sleep disturbances, insomnia, thinking about the case even in your dream, um, having eating problem or body image. And these are all signs of mental health conditions. So if you begin to notice any symptoms that you did not notice prior even to going to law school, it means that you have to take um, some action. Attend yoga, attend other mindfulness strategies and, and join some of the group um, activities that is already out there have a bike ride or whatever that your physical limitation or interest would allow you. I just want to touch on a couple points you've, you've made there, Suhaila. One is um, for the young lawyers out there who, who are sole practitioners or work at a firm that don't, do not offer insurance benefits in, in the criminal defense bar. I mean, I think it's pretty important to, try to get some insurance coverage. I, I've gotten it since I started my own practice. I've always had uh, it paid into an insurance plan to offer these sorts of um, benefits because those are the types of benefits that you don't know when you're going to need them and you can't expect necessarily to have a reserve of, of funds to pay for those things. So I encourage everybody to look into getting into a, a, some kind of insurance where you have benefits if you're a sole practitioner Alternatively, um, the other comment I want to make is as an employer and to the employers out there, um, sometimes it's important to be mindful of the potential for mental health concerns of your employees and whether or not um, they need some assistance in getting that type of care if you don't offer benefits to them um you know i i don't employ a lot of people but in over the course of my you know uh, tenure as a sole practitioner i've employed several people and from time to time on one occasion it has evaded me completely uh, and i regret that because it resulted in you know just a i'm not sure how, how the outcome of, of that issue on another time, it did not evade me because I was more mindful of it given the past experiences. And I did what I could offer as well to assist as much as I could to help, you know, the person uh, with some of these coping strategies on a micro level. So I think it's important for all of us to be mindful that this is a very common issue and it's something that we should encourage people to come forward. It's not a form of weakness. You know, we, we start in the articling in this profession thinking, well, we're going to have to work 100 hours a week and they're going to beat us down. And, and if we're unable to meet our tasks or meet our goals, then we're weak and we're not worthy of, of the title of lawyer when we're called. And I don't think that that's necessarily true and fair. 
Um, I think we should be mindful of the pressures that we put on those entering the profession. We are evolving from from when I articled, which was 15 years ago, and from when Sia articled, which was eight years ago. Um, I think that we've evolved since then. And these sorts of discussions, for instance, you know, when you have a judge on the Supreme Court of Canada, Justice Gascon, who had to come out and address his anxiety and depression issues and effectively apologize for, uh, for those interfering with his responsibilities as a judge, that type of open discussion from the top level of court is demonstrative of the type of impact that these issues have on our society and on our profession as a whole, our society as a whole and as a, our profession. And so if the, if the Supreme Court has these issues, if Justice Strathy is the Chief Justice of Ontario is writing about these issues, um, we have to be mindful that they are very prevalent in our profession. So I, I really appreciate um, these strategies that you've suggested, Sohaila. See ya? No, I agree. I mean, just like you said, uh, if, if some of the members from the highest levels of court, whether it's Supreme Court, Court of Appeal, uh, are discussing this, talking about their own personal experiences, um, you know, there's no need to be apologetic. Uh, you know, we need, and there's no need to be uh, in, a, in a position where you're, it's a surprise. Like, we need to be in a place where we can normalize this type of discussion such that uh, we understand and engage with each other and um, sort of get the supports that we need from the get-go, uh, whether you're uh, an employee of a law firm from the reception that takes the phone calls of you know individuals who are describing their life's traumas to you, or an articling student, or a lawyer to the manager or boss uh, of the firm, and beyond, and other justice system participants, as I indicated, with court staff and judges uh, in a courtroom. I think we all need to sort of engage in the criminal justice system to have this common understanding as to the realities of mental health and how it affects each and one of, uh, and every one of us in a different way. And just uh, on the Justice Strathy article, I was when my initial reading of it, um, I found it to be very mindful of everybody in the profession. I thought, however, that by identifying litigators as gladiators, it left me with the impression that there's a we have a responsibility. Our firms have a responsibility to address these mental health issues and be mindful of them. But I felt that the Chief Justice wasn't really um, identifying another source of the issues, which is the court and the pressures that the court put on us. And I had the privilege of actually having a personal discussion with Justice Strathy at an event that um, His Honor was speaking at. And I asked him about that. And he enlightened me by saying that the the judges in the litigation sphere in terms of trial judges carry that same unfortunate gladiator attitude. They have a lot of pressures. They have pressures from the system. They have pressures to get cases completed. They have the same pressures of, of, of the subject matter. They have to deal with hot contested litigation as well and they feel this burden of carrying large loads of work and so they have to also be mindful of the impact of you know the job on mental health so they are part of the gladiators and not necessarily the emperors <laughs> as i wanted to want to yeah. believe that we were the gladiators and they were the emperors putting this pressure on us but instead, you know, his honor drew my attention to the impact on, on them and, and, and contrasted that with his court, the Court of Appeal, who he indicated was much better situated to allow for accommodations if necessary to address any issues that any of the litigants had. But it's a good starting point. If it starts at the Court of Appeal and it begins to trickle down um, and, you know, the Chief Justice of a province draws everybody's attention to this and opens up this conversation it's important in my opinion that the profession starts to hear and, and discuss these issues so i really really appreciate this discussion suhela thank you and i want to mention that by having the leaders to come out they have set this stage this is an epic moment 
for everyone involved within the system. And now that they have taken the risk and come out, it's up to us, it's systemically, individually, and collectively to continue their journey, to continue their narratives, and continue destigmatizing mental health condition. Mental illness is very similar to having a heart condition or diabetic. And we tend to do a lot of fundraising, let's say for heart conditions, but institutionalize and suppress talking about conditions such as mental illness or even mental health and mental well-being. So I'm hoping that we continue this momentum and continue the work through research and other strategies that we discussed so far. And perhaps there are many more wonderful recommendations that we could um, continue looking and exploring. See, I want to ask you, um, because I end all the podcasts with this question, so I'm going to ask you first, what lawyer do you feel privileged to have seen litigate before the end of their career? Or alternatively, what lawyer do you wish uh, you had an opportunity to observe before they retired? Hmm. Two names come to mind. Eddie Greenspan, perhaps Christopher Hicks. Uh, I work for... Chris Hicks uh, at the firm Hicks Adams, and I know you have as well. We've worked on numerous homicides and uh, serious complex cases uh, as juniors to, to, to Mr. Hicks. So I think that's one individual who I uh, have had the opportunity to work with, and I've learned quite a, f- quite a few things uh, in my arsenal of, of tools. Uh, what about yourself? Well, nobody really <laughs> asked me the questions, but I, I knowing that I worked uh, on early in my career on several cases with, uh, with Christopher Hicks. Um, I remember the first time I actually uh, saw him in court and it was, uh, it was a summer time. It was Scarborough court and I'd never seen him in court. And, you know, Chris showed up in a, like a nice off white linen (laughs) suit and he just looked like the barrister, that you would imagine in a southern United States coming in to assist in a highly controversial uh, project case, very highly publicized. Um, you know, the accused were held in pretty much cages, the make, makeshift, you know, gang court. Now the courtrooms are a lot more dignified. But at that time, there were makeshift that looked like cages. And Hicks uh, shows up and advocates very eloquently as he is uh, was really nice to see and it left an impression on me throughout my career um, that at the very least I try to dress always nicely (laughs) when I go to court because I always remember how much of an impression that made on me Um, as far as um, I mean a lot of guests say Eddie Greenspan as somebody that they wish to have seen of course he was a giant in the bar Absolutely. I think uh, I unfortunately didn't have the, uh, the, the privilege of, of seeing Eddie Greenspan um, at work. Um, but I think, you know, as, as many have said, he's the larger than life figure in, in, in the legal cir- circles, a brilliant lawyer who, you know, understood how important it is that everyone have a defense uh, and tireless champion of, of human rights for human rights. So, Hela, is there a lawyer that you feel privileged to have seen litigate before the end of their career or alternatively... Is there one that you wish you had the opportunity to see litigate? Um, I, that's a very good question. Um, one of the person that I admire very much is Mr. or I should say Justice Sullivan, who I got to know him when I came to Canada in 1988. He went on to become a judge, and I continue to see him and I continue to admire all the work he's doing. Absolutely, I never saw him sitting in the courtroom and that could be something that I like to do at some point in the uh, court system, yes. Are you talking about uh, Justice William Sullivan? Yes. Family court lawyer, now uh, family court judge. Ontario uh, Court of Justice. Correct, in Brampton, yes. 
Thank you for that answer, Suhail. I didn't think I thought you were gonna say Siavash Pashang. <laughs> <laughs> no, I never thought about that. <laughs> That's nice. And she's seen me in court before, but she just I didn't cross her mind. I never do for for t- top criminal lawyer, but see how Yeah. He knows that he has to get to that point eventually. <laughs> but yes. Dream on. <laughs> Sia and Suhela, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to come to the Law Garage and share your experience and knowledge with our listeners. Continuing legal education can take various forms, and I believe there's something to gain just from talking to our colleagues. Before we leave, is there anything either of you would like to plug? Uh, Suhela, I'm going to just ask if you can provide us with some resources. Um. There are a lot of uh, services that already exist within the system. As I said, there are some that are free offered by the Law Society. And you can always talk to a family doctor. If you feel the sadness extends more than three weeks, please ask for help. Talk to your family doctor. There are some health centers that do provide psychotherapy and other resources. Um, and some of us in a private practice, we are also happy to work with anyone that requires support, including the law firms. Like the system and support resources should be for individuals and the bigger um, law uh, firms. I'm happy to provide individual or group therapy sessions to legal practitioners, judges, and other justice system participants. In addition, I can provide law firms and organizations such as the Criminal Lawyers Association with mental health awareness workshops, seminars, training, and mentoring to fulfill uh, CPD and equity, diversity, and inclusion requirements. You can contact me by email at sohela at pushang.ca or visit my website for more information at www.pushang.ca. Thank you very much for both attending today. Thank you so much, Marco. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having us. Thank you for listening to the Law Garage podcast. If you're new to the podcast, please check out our back catalog and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at The Law Garage. Our production crew includes executive producer Jason Cooper and associate producers Christina Dow, Remy Sansawal, and Matthew Takamatsu. The Law Garage is a J. Mike podcast production.